All right, you guys are in for a one amazing guest today. If you're in the keto community or the bodybuilding community, this may not be an unfamiliar face. Our guest today is Dr. Jacob Wilson. And I hope you guys watch this on YouTube because I actually went out to his facility at the ASPI is what it's called. And that as ASPI is short for Applied Science and Performance Institute. These guys are amazing. They're in Tampa, Florida. I've been wanting to go out there for quite some time. They have so much research coming out of the ASPE. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Jacob Wilson. If you're in the keto space, you may be familiar with his book that he co-authored with um, Dr. Ryan Lowry called The Ketogenic Bible. It's like, I mean, you can tell by the name. It's kind of the resource for anything you want to know about keto. Um, and let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Jacob Wilson. So, um, he's a PhD. He has a, a bachelor's in sports nutrition, two master's degrees in exercise physiology and sports psychology, and a doctorate in exercise physiology. Um, he is the CEO of Applied, Applied Science and Performance Institute. Um, and a little more about him. His research has covered the cellular, molecular, and whole body changes in muscle size, strength, and power in response to novel products, training, and nutrition interventions. Um, he's published over 200 peer-reviewed papers, book chapters, and abstracts. Um, and he's won several awards, including the NSEA's 2013 Terry J. Hoosh Young Investigator of the Year Award, the 2013 Bodybuilding.com Writer of the Year Award, and the 2014 Bodybuilding.com Column of the Year Award. Um, he was also featured in the movie Generation Iron, which you may have seen on Netflix. So um, you might recognize him from there as well. But I love Dr. Wilson because he's like, he's so unassuming. <laughs> he has accomplished so much and he's just like the nicest guy. Um, very, very humble, but just has so much great information to share. So I think you guys are going to learn a lot. I kind of rapid fired questions at him because I was just, there's so much I want to know from him. So I think you guys will enjoy. Here is Dr. Jacob Wilson. Before we jump into the show, I am extremely honored to share with you the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Rep Provisions. And I want to tell you a little bit about who they are, what they're about. They are a regenerative agriculture company. They are a ranch. I have been to the ranch myself. Incredible. And if you aren't familiar with regenerative agriculture, it is my extreme honor to introduce you. So here's a few statistics of why regenerative agriculture is important before I get into what it is. First of all, the United States is losing topsoil 10 times faster than it's replenishing it right now. And this comes from our modern conventional agriculture practices that we've really just developed in the last several decades. The way we are raising cattle and the way we are growing these monocrops of plants is depleting our topsoil at astronomical rates. And I love the way Eric Perner, the founder uh, and owner of Rep Provisions, the rancher there at the ranch, I love how he puts this. He says that our planet is just a giant rock spinning in space with a tiny layer of topsoil and subsoil that supports all life on the planet. Every economy, every nation is sustained by this layer of topsoil. It's really important, right? We don't have any soil or quality soil. Health goes down and then eventually life goes away. Right. So it's, it's so important. Um, right now we're losing about 75 billion tons of topsoil every year, because as it erodes from these conventional farming practices, it goes into the waterways and then goes into the ocean and we lose it. So it's not sustainable, obviously, and we have to regenerate the topsoil. And this is where regenerative agriculture comes in. And the way they raise their animals is supportive of regeneration of the topsoil. So 
You can listen to my podcast episode with Eric Perner if you want to learn more about exactly how they do it. So important. Now, from a health perspective, this is so cool. Um, Eric just shared with me that they had their meat lab tested at Michigan State University. And if you're not familiar with omega-6 to omega-3 ratios, let me share this with you real quick. So omega-6s are pro-inflammatory. They're in all foods. Omega-3s are anti-inflammatory. So this is all foods have a certain ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. Now the ideal is one-to-one, right? So we balance out that pro-inflammatory aspect of food, which is important. It triggers a lot of things in our body, but we balance it with the anti-inflammatory effect. On average, Americans are 10 to one. Their omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is 10 to one because honestly, we eat so much canola oil and so many processed foods and all the way up to 30 to one and higher. It's super inflammatory, causes heart disease, cancer, all disease. Um, grain fed meat is on average five to one ratio or worse. And what came back from Michigan state university is that rep provisions meat has a one to one omega six to omega three ratio, which is freaking huge. Um, so, so cool. I'm so glad they found that out. And by the way, just FYI, grain fed chicken has a 15 to one ratio and seed oils are the worst like canola. Um, so we mean all these industrial seed oils, 70 to one or worse. And they estimate that 25% of the calories in the American diet come from canola oil. No wonder there's so much disease. No wonder everyone's so unhealthy. So just wanted to share that with you guys. This is not only an amazing way to support the planet, but also your own health. Um, and they're giving you guys an awesome discount. It's one of the highest discounts they offer 15% off anything with code coach Tara. So I'll link that in the show notes, or you can go to repprovisions.com anytime and just use the coupon code coach Tara and get 15% off. Thanks so much for letting me come out to ask me, um, guys, I'm excited. We have a lot to dig into, so I'm going to try to rapid fire things at you as fast as I can. Um, I, right before we started, you talked about how you're testing biological age. So I wanted to dive into that first. I've done things like telomeres, you know, there's all sorts of things out there right now, but it's so hard to measure like what you're doing and how that contributes to it. I've even heard that that kind of testing is like super subjective and might not even be correct. And so I'm curious how you guys are doing the biological age. Yeah, absolutely. So biological age guys, basically um, when you think about it, everyone looks at chronological age, say someone is 30. Well, biologically they might be 40 or 50 or they might be 25. And so it's the best way to test that. Like you talked about telomeres, um, which is kind of the end cap to DNA getting shorter across lifespan. Yeah. One of some of the problems with that is it doesn't relate to health span measures, mm. and there's nothing you can really do about it. You right. know, it's just like, oh, my telomeres are shorter. I'm 10 years older. Well, you know, eat more fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Try to be healthier. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we we developed biological age at Aspie based on a number of different parameters. And that's going to be basically like um, uh, body composition, your strength, your endurance, your um, uh, you know cognitive health, a bunch of parameters, metabolic health, yeah. cardiovascular health. And the other thing is people age at different rates, right? Mm-hmm. So um, someone might age faster in their muscular system and the other person might age faster in their cardiovascular system. Right. We identify that. So you can go, oh, well, I am older by five years, but here's why. And now I can change. So good. So, so good. yeah, so we've, we've been working on that pretty hard. That's awesome. When, how can people find out about that? So yeah, we'll be releasing it on, um, with ASPI actually, or even, uh, on my, like Instagram, the muscle PhD, okay. we'll be talking more about that cool. as well. And we also even instituted it with, um, 
some of uh, like ketogenic.com and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So we'll be launching it as a ketogevity score. Okay. Ketogevity. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Okay, cool. And I guess I should have asked first, you know, we're here at Aspie. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about Aspie and what you guys do here? Yeah. So we do research here. We have really expansive facility. Like um, actually for you guys who are in the sports or they just launched the new Rocky four, like the, the, the updated Rocky four, yeah. like the editor's cut. When I was a little kid, I watched Rocky four. And if you guys remember what the, um, Ivan Drago had all the, he was in a science lab and all these things hooked up. Yeah. Him. And as a little kid, I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, so that's kind of like what Aspie is. It's like yeah. a, it's a really big laboratory. Way to go. Did it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. And we do research on muscle, strength, power, health across lifespan. And we were literally doing it all the time. Like constantly 24-7. Yeah, how many studies have you guys had come out of here? Oh, wow. And we've probably done like over 300 studies. Wow. And when did you open? So we opened this um, in 2015. Wow, you guys have been busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so a lot of you guys, maybe, if you're in the keto world, I'm pretty sure you know Dr. Wilson. And so your book, The Ketogenic Bible, is like the ultimate resource oh, with Ryan you. Lowry that I thank send you. everyone to. It's super comprehensive. Thank if you, you want to know anything about keto, it's like it has everything thank you, thank you. in there. And so I want to talk a little bit about keto. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of in more of the body composition, athletic performance end of the keto world. Yeah. And so I was wondering if you could share best practices for optimizing your body composition and your athletic performance on keto. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, congratulations on your new book. Thanks. I got it. Thanks. Um, and I've been actually reading through it. Thanks. And it's actually a really like innovative new direction with the short-term keto concept yeah no one that had looked at keto everyone most keto books are just like general keto but the angle you take on it is super beneficial for like body composition yeah people who are trying to be fit people who want to experiment with keto right and or also maybe i just want to do it short term and come out of it yeah most books are like i'm going to just walk into keto and that's it right people don't look at well how do i enter into it and how can I exit? Right. And so, um, and even some of the concepts you, you talk about with like finding your carbohydrate ceiling, mm-hmm. things of those nature, very innovative. So I've had Thank a you. really enjoyable time reading it. Thanks reading so it. much. Yeah. Um, as far as like best practices for body composition, I think one of the number one things that I see with ketogenic dieting is that people have to realize that protein is very important. And when most people go into a ketogenic diet, they lower their protein a lot. Right. In fact, sometimes they'll lower it to like the RDA. You know, they might get 60 grams a day of protein. I've seen full-fledged bodybuilders. I can't, they check ketones, check ketones. I can't get into ketosis. I keep lowering my protein until I get into ketosis. Now, the problem with that is your pumps are going to be less. Your gains in muscle are going to be less. Your recovery yeah. will be less. Right. So if you have a hard time getting into ketosis and you're trying to lower your protein to do that, at minimum, I would say it's three times a week, bump that protein up. Okay. Even to like a gram per pound or a gram yeah. and a half per pound of body weight. Know your ketone levels won't be as high, mm-hmm. but it's going to be critical for body composition. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important. The other thing is intermittent fasting seems to be very important for ketogenic dieting. Mm-hmm. But your traditional keto person will intermittent fast for like where they eat only four hours a day. Just realize that that's a good technique for losing body fat. It's almost impossible. It's very hard to gain muscle on that. Yeah. So when you're intermittent fasting, you know, you kind of have to have at least an eight to nine hour feeding period. And you might even cycle your intermittent fasting so that maybe a couple times a week your fast is only 12 hours. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So you get a little bit more meal frequency in there. I would say supplementing with um, essential amino acids because typically with keto, your meal frequency is less because yeah. you're trying to be in ketosis. But in between meals, having essential amino acids seems to be a really good technique for doing it. Yeah. Smart. Also, yeah, you know, also realize you don't need carbs to gain, to gain muscle technically. You know what I mean? So don't feel like, oh my God, now I'm not going to gain muscle. You can. Sodium is very important for pumps. I think focusing on things that increase the blood flow. Totally. Citrulline can be very important mm -hmm. for pumps. Um, creatine. So those are some things. Yeah. Okay. So you guys had also had the first resistance training with yeah. keto study ever done here. Yeah. So what did you find in that study that might be interesting for listeners? So yeah, we did. We had highly trained resistance trained people, and the main question we had was, can you gain muscle on a ketogenic diet? I, I remember standing in front of crowds and PhDs and doctors mad, angry at me, <laughs> going like, "There's no way you can gain muscle on a ketogenic diet because you need carbohydrates because carbohydrates fuel." Um, high intensity lifting. Mm -hmm. Well, what we ended up found, we did a series of human studies and we even did animal studies. And what we found is that mm -hmm. you could actually stimulate as much protein synthesis, which is like short term accumulation of muscle, when you, on a ketogenic diet, and you can gain just as much strength on a ketogenic diet. But you tend to lose more body fat when you're on it. So I think that's one thing that I find that was really positive. Yeah. Um, you can definitely gain muscle on it. Um, Power sometimes seems to be inhibited a little bit, but also the other thing I'm going to say too, I think that's very important is that there's an adaptation period. Yeah. Any study that goes shows that it doesn't work, that they're usually short term. It takes a couple of weeks to adapt to keto. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. And if we look at Jeff Volick's research, we see that the longer people are in keto, the better athletic performance that's they right. tend to have. That's right. And there's that whole um, glycogen sparing that yeah. he found that's really interesting, that's right? right? So yeah. yeah, if you've been keto for a year or more, you're probably going to have much better performance in yeah. the gym than somebody who just started exactly. <laughs> four days ago and their body's trying to figure out what the heck is and going on. miserable. Yeah. yeah. And I think power is interesting too, because I have found like... Specifically for people who have high inflammation, if yeah. you're super inflamed and then you go keto and that inflammation starts dropping, sometimes those clients actually well, get stronger, right? And so it really depends. But if you didn't have that, you know, yeah. and you're just really used to that glycogen and yeah. helping you with performance, it might be a different story. So that's so. one of the reasons why I personally tried keto when I started mm. with it because for, I did a lot of powerlifting and my mm. joints were so hurt. It was hard to bend my knees. Wow. And when I went on keto, the inflammation probably knocked down probably 60%. Wow. And so I think from that perspective, it could be very beneficial. Yeah. Super cool. Um, uh, let's talk about protein cycling. We mentioned this a little yeah. bit on keto. Could yeah. you share this, your thoughts on protein cycling? So I think what you do is you find that protein intake that kind of optimizes your blood ketone levels. Okay. So for some people that might be like, it might be 0.8 grams per pound, let's say. You know, but maybe they don't optimize muscle growth on that. So maybe they do two days on that low end, and then they go one day on, on one gram per pound. Mm. And then maybe on like a leg day, they go higher, maybe like 1.5. Yeah. So maybe like one or two days a week, they're going higher than a gram per pound. Maybe two days a week, they're going a gram per pound. And then maybe three days a week, they're going on that optimal level for ketosis. Mm. 
Mm. I think that's a good way to do it. You know, to, to I mean? balance like the fat loss benefits and all yeah. the health benefits of keto, while not while also optimizing the chances of having Correct. more muscle gain. That's it. Yeah, that's awesome. It. Okay, thanks. Yeah. All right, I asked you this beforehand. <laughs> um, do you? So sometimes I get people and they come to me and they're like super fit. Yeah. They have perfect blood sugar management. Yeah. They they can go a long time without eating, no problem. Yeah. They're fat adapted, yeah. Yeah. you know. They you know they work out on the daily. Their health is thriving, and they're like, "Do you think I need to do keto?" Yeah. <laughs> and so I wanted to pass that question along to you. So I'll tell you this: I think, listen, when someone is metabolically healthy, they have great blood sugar, they have great cardiovascular health, everything is going great. There may not be a need to do ketogenic dieting, and under unless there's a couple circumstances that they face. Number one. If they start getting joint problems, like you pointed out, lowering um, carbohydrates is a way to relieve inflammation. Yeah. So they might be super healthy, but their joints aren't. Right. So lowering inflammation can be one benefit. A second benefit could be if you're coming out of a diet. So even though they're healthy, if they've come out of a diet, their hormone levels may have plummeted. Yeah. And so, and so their metabolisms might be lower and their hormones might have plummeted. We have found that raising fat levels in your diet can actually boost things like testosterone. Yeah. And testosterone is important for men or women. So basically it can boost those anabolic hormones and get you back in, in, in um, your metabolism skyrocketed higher. Yeah. The other thing Good is point. it's very hard to gain fat on a ketogenic diet. So when someone's like coming out of a hard diet, their body's preferentially burning muscle at that point and not fat. There's a way to switch you into using fat as your primary fuel source. Yeah. So those are some situations I think it could be even beneficial for them. Yeah, that's really smart. I know like sometimes I'll have, and you're so um, well-known in the bodybuilding community, so if there's any bodybuilders listening, they'll probably appreciate this, but sometimes I'll have bodybuilders tell me like, well, I did keto when I was cutting for my competition. I didn't eat any carbs, you know, so every once in a while you have the coach that does that. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but you weren't eating any fat either. Yeah, and that's yeah, a totally different story. And yeah. I, you know, I've had guys tell me they're like, I was basically surviving between like, injection to injection yeah, for energy yeah. levels, you know? Yeah, and and I think about that and I'm like, you're kind of like brushing your teeth with Oreos when you're yeah. doing that because your testosterone's dropping yeah. naturally and you're having to depend on these ex yeah. uh, exogenous sources. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. I know for me, when I found keto, I was, looked like a bodybuilder, 11% body fat, all super into the kind of bodybuilding lifestyle. And man, like getting that fat back into, I felt like I went through like an awakening, right? Because yeah. oh, like yeah. my brain and emotions and hormone levels were so 100%. much better. 100%. So yeah, if you're super fit, but you've been eating really low fat for a long time. Like, You'll notice a big difference. Yeah, I appreciate that message. Yeah. Um, okay, so I wanted to dive into some of the ASCII research because yeah. it's so fun. So um, I mentioned, I think the first time I ever heard you speak, um, you had mentioned um, some findings that you guys had about intraset stretching, and I yeah. wanted to pass this along to the audience sure. because it's cool. Can you yeah. share on that? Absolutely. So when I was first getting into research, I was actually, I've read this study when I was just getting into college. And I saw, I would read, because, you know, different studies, and I even read a lot of animal studies. And there was this one researcher, his name was Dr. Antonio, and he actually did an experiment with birds. <laughs> And, um, wow. His, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I know. Um, but he did a study where he found more muscle growth, and I've read a lot of papers on muscle growth, and every animal, every, and humans, he saw more muscle growth in his study than I've ever seen in any study, pretty much ever. Wow. And so what did he do to accomplish these results? All he did was he had the, he, he took weights, and he put them on the bird's wings, um, and kind of just, hung on, on the wing. So it'd be kind of like, I'm trying to think of the best thing. 
Imagine if I were to do a, um, a pull up, and I just put right. a weight on my on on my um, on my waist, and I just hung from the pull bar. It's similar. Yeah. So he, he kind of just put uh, weights on the wings, and they just hung. And he did this for like several weeks, and he found that they started gaining muscle like crazy. Wow. So intense weighted stretching seems to trigger muscle growth. But he didn't just find muscle growth. He found they formed new muscle fibers. Wow. That the muscle fibers were under so much stress that they split. And mm. then those fibers grew. It's like the ultimate eccentric. Exactly. It is. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was sharing. After I heard you say that, I was like, uh, I tried it with triceps, like skull crushers, which yeah. makes sense because it kind of has that hanging yeah. effect. And oh my gosh. It's no fun. It's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is. So try that, guys. It's, yeah. it's good stuff. So, 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 but we oh, incorporate yeah. it into humans. So what happened, like you pointed out too, so the best way to do it in humans, we found, let's say, again, you take the skull crushers or you could take, take calf raises, easy thing to do. Yeah. Say you're doing like leg press calf raises, you go to failure on the calf raise, and then instead of stopping, you let the weight stretch your calves. And then, uh, and, and for like 30 seconds, or maybe even 60 seconds. So you do your normal set, and then let that weight stretch the muscle. Mm -hmm. If you, you're doing, that's a perfect exercise that you did for triceps or whatever, but it really works. Yeah, I've done it on the the calf raise on the right. leg press too. It's unbelievably it, difficult. It, it, it really yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, okay, we also talked about offset loading. Yeah. Can you share on this? And also, do you think people need a DEXA scan in order to even implement this? So good question. So I think we all have imbalances. I will say this. The people who know more about imbalances are many people who are involved in physique sports. Yeah. You, If someone's in physique sport, you say, oh, my left bicep's smaller than my right. Mm -hmm. My left pec smaller than my right. You know, may, maybe my um, right hamstring isn't as developed as my, you know, my left. Everyone has imbalances. And whether you're in sport, whether you're in life, and it typically favors the dominant side of your body. Mm -hmm. Most people favor the dominant. However, it could also favor a side that was previously injured. Mm -hmm. If someone had injured their left knee when they were a kid, they may have started to favor their right knee. And for the rest of their life, they favored it. More mm -hmm. muscular development there. So we're always trying to find ways to overcome that. Well, oftentimes people will just do unilateral training to overcome it, mm -hmm. okay? But let's just say that you're, in it, or you're a powerlifter, you're trying to get stronger. Yeah. If you're trying to get stronger, you're gonna get, wanna get stronger in the bench press, not necessarily unilateral movements. Right. If you're trying to get stronger in the squat, you wanna get stronger in the squat, not necessarily unilateral movements. So what we did with offset loading is, you offset one side of the load. And typically, you might offset it toward the unbalanced side. So let's say that my left pec is not balanced. So what I might do is, if I'm benching 200 pounds, I might add a five on one side on that weaker side. And if we look at muscle activation, if you're on a normal bench, we'll see more activation on the dominant pec than the non-dominant. If we slightly offset it, it will balance out that muscle activation immediately. Wow. Long term. We found that it increased muscle growth, nice. muscle strength, a lot. And uh, one of the other reasons is people, think about it. You guys go and you go bench press. It, are they people thinking about it? No, they're just benching. Right. Same thing oftentimes with squats. You feel the pain, but you're not thinking about, oh, how is my technique? Right. But if you offset, all of a sudden now you start thinking about it, it shocks the nervous system. And the nervous system has to get better at recruiting muscle fibers. Yeah. So you get stronger and you recruit more muscle fibers, and you actually gain muscle. So anyway, we kind of randomized the offset to balance it out. 
Sometimes we put it on the right side, sometimes on the left, and we did it and got the immediate gains. That's, it's, it's like I was uh, saying before, I'm like, it's so, it seems so simple and obvious, but no one does it. No, Nobody, yeah, no one does exactly, that. Exactly. <laughs> That's so awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, so I was going through all your YouTube videos. By the way, guys, follow him on YouTube. He has so much good information mm-hmm. on the Muscle PhD YouTube channel. But there were a few that I wanted to highlight for this episode. Oh, yeah. Um, one was, uh, now this is, I'm not talking about keto. I'm just talking about in general for people, protein and body composition. Can you share your thoughts on, you know, because, gosh, when I first started getting really fit, I was eating quite a bit of protein and everyone was like, dude, you're going to die. Like you're going to screw up your kidneys. Like that is so stupid. Like it was like embarrassing. I almost wanted to keep it a secret. I'm like, well, it's really working for me and I don't feel like I have any kidney problems. Um, Can you share your thoughts on uh, protein, the fear around protein and also like what can happen in your body composition when you eat a little higher protein? Sure. So protein is, I think the most important anabolic nutrient that we have. Mm-hmm. So if you're someone's gonna change, if you're gonna transform your body composition, gain muscle, lose fat, protein is probably the most important thing you can do. Mm-hmm. And in our society, they talk about the RDAs like, I mean, so low. You know, like <laughs> 0.8 grams per kilogram, or like which is pretty much like 0.4 per you know per pound. It's not, right. it's not a lot, right? So the point is that I mean, if they're telling you eat 60 to 80 grams of protein. Well, look at what's going on in our society, poor metabolic health, obesity, mm-hmm. all these things. And they always say, like you look at the food pyramid, it's always like the basis, grains and right. carbs, and right the little itty bitty toppings have a little bit of protein. Yeah. Well, that's a problem. Right. And for body composition, it's a major problem. We need to shift our thinking on that. So basically, one thing is, for healthy people, increasing your protein intake only results in better health gains. You, you see improved cardiovascular health. You don't see any kidney problems. You see improved um, metabolic health, lower body fat, more muscle mass, higher metabolisms. So that is definitely a myth. Unless mm-hmm. someone has a kidney problem, right. then it's not an issue. Right. That's number one. So number two, protein is directly stimulates muscle and directly raises your metabolism. I'll give you a case in point. Carbohydrates, to digest them, it takes about five to 10% of the calories to digest them. So if you eat 100, gram, 100 calories of carbs, maybe you burn five. For protein, it's up to 30%. So if I eat 100 calories from protein, I might burn 30 calories just digesting or stimulating protein synthesis. So it means it's harder to store fat. And in fact, studies show that I can overeat on protein and sometimes lose fat. Whereas if I overeat on carbs, almost all studies show you gain fat. Right. So again, it's a way that if you are trying to raise your metabolism, a great way to do it is just bump up your protein. Yeah. So I think a gram per pound is really good. I think if mm-hmm. you're trying to reset your metabolism, 1.5 grams per pound, mm-hmm. maybe even better than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I was reading a study that said that protein, when they isolate macronutrients, protein has the longest uh, duration of satiety impact. So it's like and, you're burning calories. They're basically like free calories. And, and on top of it, you stay fuller longer. And, like, what do you think is going to happen? Not to mention it's building muscle, your metabolic rate's going exactly. up. It's like exactly pretty easy. That's why I tell people all the time. I'm like, dude, it's really not that hard. Like eat, eat more protein no question <laughs> and go train. And it's like no question game changer. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. You got it. Okay. Uh, training to failure. Yeah. Can you share your insights on this? So I think, so here's the thing. Training to failure is, again, I can't voluntarily get another uh, repetition. And a lot of times people will train to failure every set. Let me say, what happens when you go to failure? When you go to failure, there are some benefits. One is 
you're maximally recruiting those muscle fibers. That is a benefit. Um, you maximally uh, stimulate things like lactic acid. Lactic acid can trigger muscle growth. Um, you maximally stimulate blood flow. So, so there are benefits to failure. The issue is that when I go to failure, it taxes my nervous system uh, to a high degree. So let's say that I'm going to do four sets of bench press. If I go to, say, I, I, my, I do 10 reps, but I go to failure on the first set, it will tax my nervous system quite a bit, such that my next set, I only get six. So my training volume goes down. If I go to failure then, maybe I only get three the next set. But let's say on the first set I got nine, I didn't go to failure. The next set, I probably can get nine again. And third set, maybe I get eight. And then the fourth set, I go to failure. Mm -hmm. So I still get the benefits of going to failure, but I have greater training volume each of my sets. Right. And also, I recover from that workout faster between mm -hmm. workouts. So I think failure is a good tool, mm -hmm. but I don't think you need to go to failure on every set. Yeah. Try and leave it for like that last set in a workout. Now, I will also say this. If you feel really overtrained, then you can, I would recommend maybe coming close to failure for a week or two mm -hmm. until mm -hmm. you feel great mm -hmm. and then reinstitute it. Totally. Can you describe, because I know some people like they don't know what uh, CNS or central nervous system mm -hmm. fatigue feels like. Can you kind of describe that feeling for people yeah. what to watch for? Yeah. You start feeling grumpy. Yeah. Um, your effort is much higher on a given lift. So, for example, mm -hmm. it, whenever you do a lift, you look at your perceived exertion mm -hmm. on a scale of 0 to 10. If you're warming up and you feel like your perceived exertion is higher, you're CNS fatigue. Great. That is such a great way to, to yeah. measure that. Yeah. I always, yeah. for me, it feels like feeling very weak and the weak. core of my body is just like, yeah. dude, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything's just Everything's harder. harder. That's yeah. a great way to put Motivation's it. Motivation's down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, okay. Cardio. Uh, so I saw you share a video about, you know, low intensity, medium intensity, high intensity. Can you share the impact that they have on how we process macronutrients, yeah. you know, which you prefer for, uh, I guess, the intended results, right? Like, it's all about the intended results cardio. You know, it really comes down to the intended results. If your intended result is, well, here's the thing. You got to realize that whatever we do, we adapt specifically to that, okay? So let's talk about if we go really low intensity, really long duration. Well, if you look at athletes who are like that, you see the adaptation, right? They're, they're pretty lean. They don't have a lot of muscle mass yeah. because an adaptation of really long duration cardio is to get rid of that muscle mass. You right. don't want to carry a lot of muscle if you're going long duration. Right. Now you look at sprinters. They're very lean, but um, but and, and their hearts are strong. Um, may, not, may not be good at long duration, but they have strong cardiovascular health and they're very lean. So you have high intensity cardio, which is the interval training on one spectrum, and you have low intensity on, on the other end. Um, now, when I'm thinking low intensity, I'm actually really I should be saying moderate. It's like for you yeah. know, let me rephrase that: moderate long duration cardio results in a lot of muscle loss, like the marathon runners, like the marathon typically, runners. right? Yeah. If I'm thinking super low intensity, like I'm just walking, walking right. that might be so low intensity that's not going to cause any adaptation, right? And so you might be able to get do do that. So like mm -hmm. that's why like every night I might walk my dog for like 45 minutes, but I'm not. It's not stressing me. It's yeah. just burning calories, and so I don't get any negative adaptation. Right, and it's like helping lymph flow and connecting to nature exactly. and breathing, and it's more health benefits versus yes. like metabolic adaptations in your, in your body composition. Exactly. Right. Whereas if I'm more moderate intensity, it's kind of hard, but I can go 30 to 60 minutes or even two hours. That can cause muscle loss, 
But if your goal is to compete in uh, endurance event, I think that's what you have to do. Right. If your goal is more, I want to have be healthy and I want to have low body fat, high intensity interval training is a great way to gain muscle and lose fat at the same time. Now, what is the duration where we start to see the muscle loss? It seems to be that once you go past 20 minutes, it, it's a dose-dependent response. Nice. So if you're like, well, I still like to go like some, I like to run a mile or two, that could be okay, but you probably want to keep it under 20 minutes if your goal is muscle gain. Mm. Yeah. Nice. What are your thoughts on, and I actually wanted to ask you this on the failure thing too. Um, I mean, I hear a lot of uh, our colleagues say things like people think they're doing high intensity interval training and they're not, right? Yeah. Like they're doing like V-ups and that's one of their high intensity yeah. intervals. And it's like, not really. So what would truly be considered a high intensity interval? Yeah, well, it's almost like we talked about failure and resistance training. Well, if you're like going, oh, I'm going all out for 30 seconds, I'm resting 30 seconds, I'm going 30 seconds on as hard as I can, you aren't really going as hard as you can for 30 seconds. Right. If you set the intensity high enough, in 30 seconds, you should not be able to go anymore. Like, if you're sprinting on a treadmill and you put it on an incline, and you set that for 30 seconds all out, you have almost no choice but to grab the railing at the end of that. And right. if you're doing that, you're huffing and puffing for at least three, four minutes afterwards. Right. Just like if you went to failure on a squat. Right. That's true, very high intensity in interval training. Now I'm talking about that can make people lose fat at a very rapid pace. Yeah. So you've got to dig. Right. Um, and when you're doing that, you might only be able to do four to 10 total intervals because you're so hard. Right, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I've you know, um, had to definitely be careful of my wording. I'm like, this is circuit training, it's not high intensity interval yeah. training because if you're doing 30 seconds on, 30 yeah. seconds off, yeah. you're, you need yeah. longer to recover from a true high intensity exactly. uh, spurt yeah. than 30 seconds. Exactly. So there's no way you'd be able to pick back up yeah. again. Yeah, and I always say like, if it, when you get to that point, it's it's scary. It's like, oh it my gosh, scary. this is gonna suck. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're right. Okay, last thing that I wanted to, um, I don't even know, because I, I mean, I know you work with so many athletes. Do you ever work with teenagers or do you have any thoughts? I, I know a lot of parents ask me this. They've got, maybe not even teenagers, but they're the young guys, right? Maybe they're starting at 16, 17, but now they're 19, 20. And I know you have a lot of following that's in that 19, 20, yeah. 21 eight demographic and bodybuilding. Um, is, do you have any tips on uh, or concerns almost for this demographic that people that parents might want to be aware of to help well, them out with? I, I one thing I'll say is um, obviously form becomes very important. Yeah. So listen, the all these concerns that you have a, a young teenager or a, a kid who's maybe in fifteen or whatever sixteen, and they are just going in their form is awful. That's not good. You want to make sure that you have. Start with getting picture per, per, perfect form right. before you start adding load. Yeah, I'd say that's probably part of the number one concern that you have. Other than that, I think weightlifting is one of the most healthy things that people can do. Yeah. It's got to be a good form. Yeah. If they don't have good form, it's going to program for the rest of their life, and it's going to be bad. The other thing is, one advantage is when people are teenagers, not, they can recover from everything. Yeah, I right. mean, you can make. And a 17, 18-year-old can make more gains in a year than, you know, if you're like in your 40s, it might take, you know, it's like five years worth of gains in six months. So, you know what I mean? So, so the 45-year-old dad going to the gym with his 18-year-old son, it's going to be a little yeah, demoralizing exactly, doing the same exactly workout. Right. Yeah, because exactly. they sleep so deep, but they recover so well. They're yeah. So, yeah. Um, and even if, and I recommend sleeping. But you could have an 18-year-old who sleeps for three hours and still they make better gains. And I don't recommend that. 
Yeah. But you know how it is. Yeah. You have like college students. They'll go out. They'll party. They'll still make games. But it's like as people get older, they have to focus more. And but that same teenager would get way better games if they did everything right. Right. Yeah. Wrong. But it's like, guys, this is the biggest opportunity of your life to make games. Yeah. Love that. I, I wouldn't take it away from that. Do you remember hearing growing up people would say, if you lift weights when you're a teenager, it'll stunt your growth? Yeah. 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 I was like, but I think people are so fearful of that. I'm like, no, 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 no. They, they need exercise. Not they to do. mention how much they're on phones and isolated. So like yeah. if you get the antidepressant benefits of yeah. working out is oh, so healthy for them. That's exactly right. They're... <laughs> Better antidepressant effects with exercise yeah. than drugs. Yeah. I, I heard from some Harvard study that they're actually starting, some psychologists are starting to recommend exercise before drugs. I'm like, oh, thank God. And, we, and the funny <laughs> thing is they're starting to do this, but we've known about this I for know. like decades. I know. It's oh, my gosh. It's scary, you know? Speaking of the last thing on teens, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I'm becoming increasingly aware of these boys who are like 17, 18, still in high school, and they're all wanting to get on anabolic steroids. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on I that? I don't recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> any warnings? No. But, you know. and, and again, I go back to this, like, the number one steroid you can have is to be 18 or 19. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Right. You are in your prime peak anabolic state. Yeah. Don't waste it. Yeah. You need to take advantage of your own natural like capacity when you're 18 and 19 like you're everyone's gonna always look back and go man i wish i could respond like i was 18 and 19. yeah take that window and just take full advantage of it because it's magical oh totally and like anybody who's made some gains yeah. in the gym you realize like once you've gained those it's pretty hard to lose yeah. them like you'd have to like totally give up for a exactly. very long period of time exactly. to lose that so it's a good investment no in your future you. when you're young yeah 100%. thank you for sharing that yeah Okay, so we've got the ketogenic Bible. We've got, what's, what's Aspie's website? So uh, we have um, theaspi.com. Theaspi.com, okay. Yeah. And I noticed you guys have, you have courses like. Oh yeah, so so yeah, so on all this stuff, actually on the musclephd.com. Okay. On the musclephd.com, I have a course. It's a 30 week course. And I will say people who go through the course will know more about muscle more about nutrition for body composition and exercise science than I'd say most people coming out with graduate degrees. Wow, that's yeah. awesome. In fact, yeah, like probably more than 99% of people graduating with like a master's and probably they might know a lot more than more, most PhDs. Like we took, because wow. when I was in school, there's so much blood. Right, that's what I was thinking. Like, it's so valuable to get that from you because... I, like I was always like I don't want to go learn nutrition from that lady at the small call. She's not yeah. in the cutting edge of what's happening no, right now. Like so I want to learn from the people who are in the cutting, and you are, yeah. which yeah. is super valuable. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, they're teaching a food pyramid, and then it's just like it's just so basic, and you gotta you gotta go through so many years of school to grab that real info. Yeah. So we've taken years and years of schooling, and we've condensed it into thirty weeks of the most important information. And we take them through everything. Again, that's on the muscle PhD. Okay. But basically, you learn, take, we take every muscle group and go on the science of each muscle group, how to lift for it, the nice. anatomy and physiology of it. We talk about the physiology of training, energy systems, periodization, carbs, fats, for It's really in-depth. Awesome. Um, so What's the name of that course? Um, so it's called the Muscle PhD Academy. Academy, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And cool. when people graduate, they get um, like uh, exercise science specialists. Oh, nice. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay, awesome. I'm so glad you did that. I was uh, reading your LinkedIn bio and 
I shared it in my Instagram problem. Like he's a little bit educated. He's been <laughs> just done a, a few thank things here you, and there. So yeah, you. I appreciate you creating thank that. You. I might do it myself. <laughs> um, and um, let's see, where else can people find you? Uh, we know there's the Muscle PhD YouTube channel. Yeah. You know any yeah, any so other YouTube resources? Channel, um, Instagram Muscle PhD or main things in the website. Okay, my main website. Yeah. All right. Thank yeah. you so much you. for your it's time. Been a pleasure. I'm so excited <laughs> to be on here. Congratulations on your book. Like, Thank you. And for you guys that like have are going to get an opportunity to read it, I highly recommend it. I've been reading it like a lot. And I picked up a lot of things too, just reading it. So, Thank you so much. I know, and also I know it's a lot. Of, it's a lot goes into writing a book and you can see the detail that went into mm. this one. So me personally, like I highly recommend it. Thank you so much. Yes, Thank absolutely. you so much. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Inside Out Health Podcast. I hope this episode served as inspiration and something that you needed to hear in your life. If you have a friend or family member that you think would benefit from this episode, please share it with them. And also please subscribe. I have so many more amazing guests coming. I have just been so gifted and honored to meet so many incredible health professionals in my career, and I cannot wait to share their messages with you guys. So please subscribe. And if you could be so kind as to rate my show, I would really appreciate it. This podcast is honestly an intuitive call to me to help spread goodness to the world. And so if you guys can help me do that, I would really appreciate it. If you want more info on this guest, pop over to my website, check out my podcast section, and you can get links to everything we talked about in the show um, and find out more about this guest and what where you can go from here. Make sure you're also following me on Instagram. Uh, that is my most active platform. You can find me at Coach Tara Garrison. You can also find me on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter. Everything is Coach Tara Garrison across the board. And then yeah, if you want to send me a message, guys, let me know other guests or other topics you want to hear on the show. Please let me know. I am here to serve you. So I would love to hear from you. Would love your feedback on the show. And if you share any of these episodes, please tag me on social media. It's Coach Tara Garrison. 